This episode is presented by Gorgeous. Did you know that loyal customers are nine times more likely to convert compared to first-time shopper? That's why exceptional customer service is so important for your retention and growth. Gorgeous combines all of your communication channels, including email, SMS, social media, live chat, and phone, all on a one platform and gives you an organized view of all tickets. This saves your support team hours per day and makes managing customer orders a breeze. Book a demo at Gorgeous.com. That's G-O-R-G-I-A-S.com today and mention the Consumer VC podcast for two months free. Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is Harpreet Rai, CEO of Aura. Aura is a smart ring that you wear on your finger and tracks your sleep and links how you sleep to your energy levels throughout the day. I have one and I simply love it. I have a bullet journal as well where I track all my habits and how I'm feeling throughout the day. And what I've learned is one of the biggest indicators to how I feel and how productive I am is directly related to my score on on Aura. In this episode, we discuss how underrated sleep is, the sleep economy, and how Harpreet became the CEO of Aura, as well as much, much more. Without further ado, here's Harpreet. Harpreet, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Great. Mike, how are, how are you doing? I'm doing really well, thank you. Doing really well. Um, so I know that you originally worked in banking and finance for a long time. What compelled you to become an entrepreneur and start your own business? Madness. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I, uh, uh, I, I like pain. Uh, <laughs> no, I um, may seem that way, but... I'd actually say for me, it was a, a combination of all my passions and frankly, just a little bit of my life experiences. I was really into sort of health and, and wellness, if you want to call it that, but really started that started in high school. I was a really bad athlete. You know, I looked different. I went to a big public high school. I wanted to fit in. And I just was like fascinated, annoyed mainly as to like, I felt like I had to work twice as hard as everyone else in my soccer team to be half as good. So I was like, I was, that just led me to start learning about the human body and health. I think, um, you know, I, I went to University of Michigan, go blue, and uh, some, you know, it's a polarizing thing at our company to say our CEO went to Michigan State, but uh, still proud. Uh, we're, we're go big. As I can see, as I can see with your Michigan sweatshirt. Yes, thank you. Um, <laughs> but um, I study electrical engineering. So my dad studied electrical engineering. You know, my grandfather was an electrical engineer. And, you know, math and science for me was a little bit easier, a little bit more fun than, you know, some of the other subjects in, in high school and college. And I specifically studied MEMS sensors, you know, which is MEMS microelectronic mechanical systems. It's, it's really sort of like think and accelerometer, a motion sensor. That's, that's a MEMS sensor. And so got to work on those cool sensors in college. I happened to be graduating during sort of the financial bubble, you know, 2006, 2007. 
and my sister was living in New York City. You know, I wanted to live in New York City. It was a cool place. There wasn't many engineering jobs, but it was like, hey, there's this thing called banking or consulting. And there's lots of those kinds of jobs in New York City. And I could pay off a bunch of my student debt. So I ended up spending 10 years in one year in banking. That's how long I made it. <laughs> and then nine years at a, at, a, at a hedge fund, which was actually really cool. I got to invest in tech, media, telecom, globally, you know, mainly public market stocks, um, sort of $2 billion, $3 billion market caps and up. But it was a combination of those three things that really led me to joining Aura. So I, I wasn't actually one of the founders. I've been involved with the company for about five years, first as an investor, then in 2017 joined as president. And then in 2018, three years ago, the board promoted me to CEO. But it's been like a wild ride. And frankly, it's been awesome. I got to work on my three passions every day with some awesome you know, team members, even if they went to other Big Ten rival schools. It's still a lot of fun. So when you first invested in Aura, what was the opportunity that you were seeing? I felt like there was others like me. And there's more people like me than that weren't. So I think for like every person you see you know, from a health perspective that has awesome health, there's like 90% of people who don't, right? And it's like that person that has six-pack abs or can run a five-minute mile or, you know, can like eat whatever and, and, and be fine with it. There's people who struggle when they eat. They have negative consequences when they eat the wrong food. They, you know, they can't get those results in the gym or they can't run a five-minute mile no matter what they do. And I just, you know, but this conquest for sort of cult performance, but then also health, right? Like despite ever increasing spend on, you know, the medical world, U.S. healthcare spend is like exceeding nearly 20% of our GDP now. It's insane. It just, you know, it shows you how big of a problem it is. More people are obese than ever, have heart attacks more, more unfortunate, you know, increase of cancer rates, incident rates, um, Alzheimer's, dementia happening early and earlier. And so it's just like people are going to spend on their health. Their health is their life. Right. And I just felt like that trend was was only increasing. Got it. That makes sense. And so when you think about health and wellness and the very different maybe attributes for it, whether it's nutrition or whether it's exercise, why was sleep something that really piqued your interest? I think sleep is perhaps the most overlooked area in health and wellness. And I think it's perhaps the most important. Well, well, there's a couple of ways to think about this. Just taking a step back, it's actually, if you take it away, how bad does it get? Maybe that's like, in absence of sleep, what happens? Well, it turns out you die, right? And it turns out you actually hallucinate. In fact, you'll die from a lack of sleep before then a lack of water as you just drink a, you know, water on cue. <laughs> so you can go for a couple of weeks without food, right? You can go for, you know, not just about a week with, you know, without water, forget what it is. But in roughly three or four days, you'll, you'll actually die from no sleep. You start hallucinating first. Yeah. But unfortunately, don't try it. Um, there's been studies out there and unfortunately people who have. And so I just think that sort of shows how important it is to your body. Now, most of us don't think about it because we're frankly not thinking when we're sleeping, we're unconscious. And, you know, but it turns out when you sleep, your brain literally is recovering in your body from all the stress of each day. So your brain is going through these sleep stages, at, you know, different frequencies, REM sleep, deep sleep, light sleep, and all these miracles are happening. I mean, literally your muscle tissue is repairing itself. Your brain is actually healing itself. You're consolidating your memories. Your, you know, hormones are actually all being regulated, whether it's your testosterone, or, you know, whether it's your luteinizing hormone, you know, what, your collagen, for example, is all built in your sleep. And just all these miracles are happening at night and most people don't know about it. And then even more, half of us now get less than six hours on a given night. 
So it's half of Americans on any given night now get less than six hours. A hundred years ago, we all used to get sort of nine hours consistently. 50 years ago, it used to be eight hours consistently. Now it's you know less than seven on any given night for the national average and for half of us less than six. And it has terrible, terrible health consequences. How do you get people to actually become aware of the importance of sleep? Education. I think it's the, the hardest thing. People just need to hear it. They need to understand it. They need to learn. They need to learn sort of like why this matters. I think that's, again, the, the hard part because you're unconscious. We all sort of just take it for granted when our head hits a pillow. Um, you know, versus diet, you feel like you're making an active choice, right? Um, but turns out, or activity, you're making an active choice. What kind of workout do you want to do? But it does turn out, actually, all those active choices you make in a day affect how you sleep. So you end up making all these lifestyle decisions every single day. And that actually affect how you sleep every night and you can improve it. And I think it's just that education that needs to happen. Frankly, more and more medical research is coming out, more and more great books, Matthew Walker's, you know, Why We Sleep. I think it's been, you know, really pivotal for raising awareness for everyone. And then unfortunately, the reason people are really becoming more aware is because they're having more problems with it. Um, if you search on Google Trends in, in the United States and you look at sleep versus running, there's more people querying sleep like Googling sleep in a given day and running. So it's sort of fascinating that now, you know, again, unfortunately, consumers are having a hard time sleeping, right? We're constantly connected, we're overwhelmed, we're stressed, right? We have so many things going on at, at work, our personal lives, right? Social media definitely doesn't help, it appears. And so I just think that um, the other way, unfortunately, you know, is that we're, we're just seeing more and more people have problems with it. Why do you think that? Why do you think that more and more people are having problems sleeping? Look, Mike, I think I think it's a, a great question. Personally, I think it just has to do with the adoption of technology and how much it's changing our lifestyles from sort of how we were wired and programmed as humans. So if you look at, I think one of the things I was talking about before was if you look at blue light, right? So when the sun goes down, your brain actually gets a signal to start releasing melatonin because there's a spectrum blue light that your brain is sensing for, your eyes are sensing for, that once that goes down, hey, brain, release melatonin. Melatonin makes you drowsy, you know, helps you fall asleep. If you're looking at a computer screen that's emitting light all the time or your TV, you know, your, your brain actually still thinks it's sunlight outside. And so as a result, you're, you know, not releasing that hormone that you naturally produce Right, um, and you end up actually making less of it than over time because um, your body's like, "Hey, it's sunny out all the time. We shouldn't make melatonin." So I think that's an example of like, "Hey, technology is super beneficial. We can talk to each other, you know, in, in high definition right now. Internet's a beautiful thing. Connectivity is a beautiful thing. Video conferencing is a beautiful thing. But it does have negative consequences if used too much. And so I think just that idea of our body starting to change, even food. So it turns out actually with sunlight. Another one is, is, is actually just your sunlight and, and metabolism and, and sort of, so when the sun goes down, also one of the other hormonal cascades that happens is your body actually tells your pancreas to stop making, you know, as much insulin. So if you think about it, sort of, I always try to think, well, how would that work if you were a caveman? Well, that sort of makes sense. You want to eat, you know, when it's light out so you can see what you're eating and killing, right? To, to, or planting or harvesting, right? Vegetarian or whatever you are. And so I just think that, you know, when the sun goes down, you have this hormonal cascade of your brain is sending a message to your pancreas, stop making insulin. And so if you actually look, Dr. Sachin Panda put this out from the Salk Institute that if you look at people's same person, same food, eat a piece of bread during the day, then eat a piece of bread at night, you have two different glucose responses. It's fascinating. And so I think that just shows 
shows you like how, you know, but you can get food now on, you know, Postmates or Uber, I don't know, 2 a.m., right? Like it's wherever, depending on the city and restaurants near you that are open. So I just think that change in our lifestyle has really dramatically impacted our ability for our body to function, our brain to function normally. And there's advantages to this. I love delivery food, you know, time to time. Who doesn't? It's convenient, but I think it has negative consequences potentially in our sleep as well. What do you advise people that actually come to you and say, hey, I actually do want to get like a better night's sleep? And what was maybe most surprising when you first started talking with like the Aura team as an investor and now a CEO? Yeah, well, I think if you just first as a consumer myself, I was a consumer. I was like one of the first thousand users on our first Kickstarter. Things I found. Wow. Alcohol, huge impact, right? And timing matters a lot. The later you have it, a nightcap, way worse than sort of happy hour. Um, you know, your body doesn't get that time to digest it. Your heart rate's super high. Your you know sleep will be all messed up. That's one that we hear a lot from our users. I would say probably one that's not as obvious that the following ones would be like caffeine. Um, we sort of all know about it, but again, you know, coffee shops, Starbucks are open until 5 p.m. or later every day. And just getting all of your caffeine, right? The half-life I want to say is like, right, you know, six, seven hours. So that means, you know, half of it's gone in six, seven hours, but then the next half, a quarter of it's still there 12 hours later, right? And so if you, you know, finish your caffeine, try to finish it by 10 a.m., right? Because 12 hours later, you'll still have a quarter of that in your system. So I think that one's fascinating. Food, timing of food, to your point, eating just an hour before bedtime, way worse effects than you'd imagine eating the same food four hours before your bedtime. So I think just the timing of dinner, really seeing a huge impact on people. But then we start finding all cool type of stuff. Hey, days I work out, um, I actually sleep way better. If I don't work out or exercise or don't move around much, I, you know, you sort of start to get more antsy and your, your sleep tends to be worse and more fragmented. And you have a you know, harder time falling asleep, like your body isn't actually tired as much. Blue light screens. Uh, we've had, you know, a lot of people tell us that they started using blue light blocking glasses that helped quite a bit. Um, suppress, you know, some of the negative consequences of, of your of that light and your body still release melatonin. I've definitely found this myself when I use them. I never used to fall asleep when the TV was on. Like a little kid, you know, watching movies at your friend's house, I'd always be like the one who wouldn't fall asleep. And it turns out I was just more sensitive to light than others. I started using blue light blocking glasses and now can fall asleep on the couch, no problem. Uh, so I think um, those are some of the, the ones that we hear quite often. And those are all things that like, frankly, for luckily for most people, don't take a lot of work. Like eat your food, just eat it earlier, right? If you are going to have, you know, alcohol, have it earlier, right? Or you'll start realizing how much it messes up your data and how you feel the next day. And you'll probably have less of it too, which is great. Caffeine, I still have two cups of coffee every day. I just have them before 10 a.m. So I think um, a luckily all these things are like easier to change than perhaps in you know running two miles every day or something like that. You know, so what we look at, we try to break down all this data really simply for consumers. So we give people three scores. We give a sleep score every day, an activity score every day, and something that we actually, the main score we focus on, something called the readiness score. You know, so sleep, I think, um, you know, we look at sort of how much you're in bed, how much you were tossing and turning within the sleep score, right? How long it took you to fall asleep, um, sleep latency. We also look at timing, like how consistent that timing is, you know, just like the sun goes down relatively the same time every day. You know, as humans, we're sort of meant to, you know, have a similar circadian rhythm and pattern. And so we look at all those things, but then we look at something called sleep staging. How much REM sleep are you getting? How much deep sleep are you getting? 
turns out that those two stages in particular, there's also a third stage, light sleep, they're all important. But deep sleep, a lot of muscle repair, right? A lot of your immune system there is actually rebuilt. REM sleep, learning comprehension, like, you know, how do you learn? How do you remember stuff the next day? So I think that there's there's different benefits to different stages. Don't expect consumers to remember all those, um, but uh, you can see all that data really easily in a way we calculate our scores. So we have all those contributors, we have eight contributors, and all of that sort of totals your score. And you can see which contributor, like, oh, it took me an hour to fall asleep last night. Oh, I actually went to bed yesterday. I was watching a hockey game. You know, the Islanders go Islanders, um, you know, and went to bed later than normal last night. But as a result, I had you know poor timing. But typically, I'm in bed by 10.30 p.m. every day. I think those are how we sort of look at sleep score. Activity score, similar type concept, different, you know, obviously contributors. Are you moving every hour? Are you getting enough movement? Things like that. How consistent is it throughout the day? And how intense is it? There's an intensity metric there. But really, the, the main focus is this readiness score. Because you can get by with a poor night of sleep. We've all done it. Um, but it's that cumulative effect of like lots of poor nights of sleep in a week that really gets you tired by Friday. And same thing with activity. It's like that cumulative effect of being sedentary and not moving that really starts to catch up with you. So writing a score looks at both your previous night of sleep, previous day of activity, your previous two to three weeks of sleep and activity. That's like half the writing a score. The other half then is certain you know biometrics that we look at. What was your resting heart rate relative to its norm? What was your heart rate variability, which is a great indicator of stress relative to your baseline? What was your changes in your body temperature, if any, and any changes in your respiratory rate? So we sort of look at your short-term and long-term sleep and activity in the writing score. We take those biometric clues from your body last night and we package it together and we give you this overall readiness score. And that readiness score sort of gives you an idea of like, you know, how ready are you to take on the day? Now, whether that's in the boardroom or, you know, on the soccer field, um, whatever it may be, right? Or in, in, in the gym, right? Like, um, or, you know, frankly, just taking care of your kids and hanging with friends, just being cognitively and emotionally there. So I think that readiness score, and we give you insight messages every day and things you may want to do, little tips that you can try to incorporate, you know, to, to have a better score the next day. That's really helpful. Um, I also just wanted to know, how do you measure the efficiency score? Because I score anywhere from like the high 60s to the low 80s when it comes to sleep. My efficiency is always like 97% to like 100%. Nice. That means you're efficient. That means when you're in bed, you're sleeping. I'm actually way worse than you. That's one of my worst metrics. So I toss and turn a lot. You know, I actually like, you know, have a herniated disc in my back, bad shoulder. I tend to toss and move more. So I'm probably like high 80s, 90% efficient. Like I'm awake for certain periods of time because of that because uh, that discomfort at night. Um, but I find out myself, for example, knowing that that when I stretch more, when I relax my body before bed, I actually end up not moving as much and staying asleep. So yeah, efficiency is just looking at tossing and turning and you know if you were how much you were actually sleeping versus how much you were awake. One thing I want to point out to people, it is typical to be awake, you know, call it half an hour, an hour every night while you're sleeping. You won't remember it, right? Sleep, you're drifting in and out of consciousness. You don't remember like, how awake you were. You can't, you're unconscious most of the night. So just want to point that out to consumers. So we had a question from somebody that wanted to know, since sleep has been the positioning of Aura, how likely is it that we're going to see fitness tracking become more of a focus? 
Yeah. So sleep is the start. We believe it's your foundation of your health. It's it's by no means the the end. So I think you'll see us come full circle on health. No pun intended. Circle thing. Uh, but, uh, but you'll see us come full circle on health. I think we've already started to do it. Right. Like we've been adding more activity stuff um, within the app. Um, you know, now we actually, you know, we've been importing activities. Both Apple HealthKit and Google Fit, we incorporate workouts in. So if you use other apps, we actually now do something in the ring itself called automatic activity detection. And so AAD for all the acronym lovers out there. And what that does is really cool. We've taken a bunch of that tags from HealthKit and Google Fit, and we've actually created a machine learning algorithm. And so now when you go running with the ring, a lot of times it'll ask you, hey, were you just running? And you you confirm that. Or you know, if we get it wrong, the important thing is to like actually correct it, and then our algorithm gets actually personalized to you. And if you don't have it automatically, you can tag activities. And if you tag it a couple times, then we'll start recognizing it for you and doing it automatically for all those people that want to get all their different steps or rowers or snowboarders. We definitely had it was pretty cool. We had a pro snowboarder who was like, dude, I was just snowboarding the other day, and it asked me my ring said in the morning, were you snowboarding yesterday? Which is pretty cool. That is super cool. That's awesome. How it's starting to pick up on on all the activities that you're doing day to day. Yeah. Let's also just on the business side of things. When was the moment that you found or believe you found product market fit? Man, I don't know if there's ever a single moment, but I think there's like a lot of clues that lead up to it. I think one thing we, you know, we definitely are a product driven company. You know, like a ring, for example, is a new form factor, right? It's a new product like that. And we should talk about that, like why it's a ring and not something in a wrist. But I would say product market fit for us was even with Gen 1, the Aura Ring, people who loved it just really, really loved it. All of our sales, you know, predominantly then were word of mouth. And they still are majority word of mouth. I think that's also reflected in our retention numbers. So, you know, I think it's been talked about like, you know, after one year, perhaps only 20%, if you read some of the old industry coverage and uh, back in some data from their IPO and S1 filings and stuff, sort of looks like 20% of people who buy it are still using it 12 months later. You know, we think our retention levels are triple to quadruple of what Fitbits is. So I think, you know, people really stick with it and they find value in it every single day. I think those two things are something that I always look for in any company I think the other way to think about it is when you're small and young, not everything's perfect as a company. And so if you're willing to deal with like a pain, like if you if it's hard to even get the product and consumers are still trying to do it, that's always a good sign. Like like Peloton, you know, when Peloton was growing even before COVID, you had to wait a long time to get one, right? It took like months, even in the early days. Even for us, we went through that. We had a back order because there's more demand than we thought for like almost like a year and a half. Um, you know, it took longer than a month to get our product, most of the time, three to four months. And thank you for all our early customers with sticking through us through those growing pains. But I actually think that's a sign. I think despite that, you're not being able to get it instantaneously. Um, people are willing to sort of fight to get it. That's a great sign of product market fit. That means that like people are willing to put up with some work to to actually, you know, get the product. And, and I think that says a lot. Why well, I decided in terms of the form as a tracker for it to be a ring. Yeah, honestly, two main reasons, accuracy and convenience. If you think about accuracy, we sort of probably take this stuff for granted, the average person, but you walk in any hospital, they're really measuring your heart rate and your SpO2 from your finger, right? We all know it. We all know these pulse oximeters. Hospitals have been using that for decades, right? And the reason they do that is because your pulse signal on your finger is about 100 times stronger than your wrist. If I say, hey, take your pulse, most people grab their inside of their wrist, 
right? Take your pulse there. Those are arteries. Those arteries, if you look at your hand, go to the palm of your hand and the skin is really thin, right? And so you can almost see the blood, how close it is to the surface of your skin, right? And then diabetics know this, or if you've ever pricked your finger, you use a little needle, you prick yourself and all this blood comes out. If you try doing that same thing, that finger prick test, take a Lancet, costs like, you know, a couple, you know, not even a dollar for a pack of like 20 at CVS or something, prick yourself in your wrist on, you know, where your wristwatch is, no blood really comes out. Um, and so it turns out on your wrist, right, where your wristwatch is, you have veins, not arteries, so there's less blood flow. You have a lot of skin, a lot of muscle tissue, if you're like me, dark skin and hair, that, you know, so all that blood, it, it actually takes like a hundred times stronger of a pulse signal, of more power to see the same heartbeat. As a result, we're able to see this data way more accurately. We validated that. We're actually the only wearable, consumer wearable, that's shown, you know, optical based over like, you know, us or any wristwatch um, device that were 99% correlated to an EKG overnight for heart rate. Apple hasn't done that. Fitbit hasn't done that. None of these companies have done that. Actually, because they can't. If they did that the whole night, their battery would die. So I think that accuracy piece matters a lot to us. And then convenience. People take things off when they sleep. You know, like you, most people take off their wristwatches when they sleep. A ring, we even chose titanium because it's super lightweight. You forget it's there. It, it just is seamless. You put it on. We hear this from consumers all the time. They're like, I forget it's even there. And I'm like, yes. Because <laughs> then it, it just blends in. It blends in with your life. You know, it just, it's really easy to use. And I think that ease of use and accuracy, frankly, are, are huge. Kara Swisher actually said this once on her podcast a long time ago. She called wearables unwearables. She's like, they're so annoying. I have to charge them every day. They look ugly. I would never wear them out to a dress, you know, with a dress if I'm going out to dinner. And I think that sort of, you know, comes back to convenience and ease of use. And anytime you as a consumer are requiring a consumer to do something, making that easier, making that work, a quote unquote work easier, just drives, I think, consumer adoption. The pulse, right? It comes back to that pulse signal is so strong in your finger. So we need way less battery to sense it. So typical charge is five nights, six nights for, for most people. Or, you know, some people still charge it every day, but they're like, man, I only need to charge it for 10, 15, 20 minutes and it's 100%. Um, so you're, you're absolutely right. It's also um, waterproof to 150 meters, so you can dive with it. But most people are not diving every day, but that means you can wear it in the shower, wash your hands, not think about it. Yeah, I've been thinking about wearing it for swimming, but I keep getting worried that it's going to fall off just because, you know, you want to kind of concentrate on the, on the stroke. But no, I wear it for everything else. I, I, I really do love it. We, we will not refund it if you lose it in the ocean. Uh, so <laughs> just keep listening. It's like, hey, I lost this. And it's like, all right, all right, you know, if you lose your iPhone, they're not going to refund it either if you drop it in, you know, in the ocean uh, or a pool. But most people actually end up having the same fear. They sort of test it out in a pool and they're like, wait, yeah, it doesn't fall off. Um, it, it, and they end up wearing it. Totally. How do you approach as well, like your pricing strategy? I know that right now it's like a one-time fee. It's $2.99 for the ring. But eventually, do you think that you're eventually going to come and roll out maybe like a SaaS business or, or a type of subscription later on? Yeah. I mean, I think consumers want new ways to pay, right? I think that's definitely happening. Um, you know, for better or worse, we're like, a, you know, more of a credit and monthly installment type of culture is the way it's moving. We did start offering a firm, allow consumers to do that and just pay monthly and, you know, monthly installments. So I think that that actually helps make it more affordable. It, it's really interesting. From a pricing strategy perspective, big picture, look at the industry. You actually have Apple Watch at $400 starting and above, depending on like which band you get. You now have Garmin at like sort of $500 to $600, even a thousand for some of your smartwatches. You're seeing even like luxury watchmakers start to make wearables. Then at the lower end, you know, 
I'd say half of Fitbit's devices now are sort of what they call premium in that $200 range and above. Um, but, you know, you, you, you sort of have this barbell thing in the market like you've seen in smartphones. You know, 30% of the units, you know, are sort of at the high end. 60 to 70% of, of like units are sort of at the low end. You know, I think for us, we want to, as a startup too, I just, as you think about that, you know, the, the high end in wearables is actually growing faster. And you know, so Apple, even, you know, Garmin has actually been growing faster than the rest of the wearable industry. So we feel like, hey, playing in that sandbox is probably, you know, more sustainable for us. And that allows us, you know, not just more revenue, but more revenue to invest back into business to come up with new health features, right? We're the first wearable to actually, you know, during COVID, you know, work with an academic institution. We did a study at UCSF, you know, published data, introduced a feature called rest modes if you're getting sick and we see it. Well, you know, recommend that like you take more rest, turn off your activity scores. Um, you know, we're, we've been working on some cool stuff in, in women's health. I think people have seen, you know, we published a study last year sort of showing some of the capabilities to see LH surge for women or even, you know, we just did a, a study in app with um, UCSD and pregnancy, being able to tell if you're getting pregnant using the aura ring. Um, so I think, you know, playing in that higher revenue area allows us to invest more in the business or higher price point, you know, and deliver more and more value to customers. So I think we're always focused on how do you create a business that allows you to invest back in the business, build a team to deliver more value. So I think over time, subscription is interesting. You know, Amazon came out with sort of the hard work plus subscription model with Halo. Very, very interesting that now after Google acquired Fitbit, most Fitbits are coming with a three to six month premium subscription trial from the start. Apple Watch now, most consumers haven't really noticed this or talked about it that much in the press. Apple now comes with a three-month embedded trial for Apple Fitness, those workout videos that, you know, I keep getting confused between iFit, Google Fit, or Apple Fitness, but um, that's now happening as well. So I think you're seeing the industry in wearables as they keep delivering more value to customers, figure out ways, you know, to generate more revenue so they can keep investing, right, and, and keep delivering more value. So I think that's something that, you know, we've seen and we'll figure out how to adapt to as well. You know, the thing is consumers, we've seen it. Frankly, I think the retention numbers aren't as high um, from what we've heard. And then also, you know, we've actually just seen people post about this on social, like add up those fees over two years. And if you're paying $30 a month for two years, you know, it's $720. You're like, wow, that's even, you know, 50% more than an Apple watch. You know, I think we'll see, I, I think more of the hardware plus subscription model is is sort of resonating more with consumers in the marketplace, but we'll, we'll see what happens. I completely agree. I remember reading one article about how if you purchase like an Apple watch and an Aura ring together, it like comes out to like the same pricing over like two years than as, as if you got a Whoop, uh, which is just quite, quite interesting when it comes to pricing. I know you talk about some of the research that conducted during COVID, but overall, what was life like during during COVID for Aura? I know that the NBA, for example, like purchased like I think like a two thousand. Would love to just kind of hear your perspective of maybe some of your learning from COVID experience. For us, I think in terms of the business, you know, it was really interesting. In the first call it 30, 45 days, you know, revenue is definitely down. We saw, you know, traffic down. Uh, interesting enough, we actually saw conversion rate down. So consumers like less willing to open up their wallets and also just like hey, I'm not searching for anything. Like, I don't know if I'm going to have a job. Like, you know, like I'm, I'm just clamping down on everything, right? I'm like, I can't even go outside. Uh, you're just scared. I think we asked ourselves during the pandemic, how can we help? Um, just like I think every company was trying to think through. And for us, I think that meant doubling down on what we always do, right? Empowering people to understand their health. Luckily, you know, Aura has been the only wearable, consumer readily available wearable from, 
you know, even Gen 1, our first rings from the kickstart in 2015 that have had temperature sensors. You know, I think we actually have seen every flu season users reach out to us and say, I thought my readiness score was wrong. All of a sudden, I went from like 80s or 90s or somebody's down to like a 50 or 40. And it said I had a temperature increase of a degree or two. Um, but they're like, I'm fine. Then a day or two later, they, you know, they, they were sick. And so I think that just meant so much more during COVID. You know, so we, we actually ended up being the first wearable to partner with a, you know, work with a research institution to, you know, launch a study. We ended up working with three or four last year. So we worked with UCSF and the Tempredic study. We actually worked with West Virginia University of the Rockefeller and Aeroscience Institute on a study and also Texas A&M along with DIU Defense Innovation Unit and, and DITRA Defense Threat Reduction Agency. And so I think some of the early data has been published and a lot more is coming out. But what the early data has shown, the UCSF group and UCSD published that paper and basically showed that 75% of the time, users are actually seeing significant changes in their data up to three days before they report symptoms. And that is could be so powerful during any pandemic, you know, any influenza, like any flu season. Hey, I may be getting sick. I may, it shouldn't go spread this around. Let me wait a day or two, try to get a test, see, you know, and confirm it. That sort of early warning light, right? That check engine light, something may be off, go, go get this checked. So I think, um, you know, the NBA was trying to figure out how to open a sports league in a bubble during the pandemic, right? Sort of smack in the middle of our season. And, you know, I think they've been really forward thinking, you know, with wearables and technology. They're actually one of the only sports leagues that has a wearable validation committee. They've looked at all these wearables and not many have passed, but luckily we have. And, you know, I think um, they they were just astounded by the quality of the data compared to other devices they looked at. And then particularly during COVID, you know, we, we just were early to start um, start a study. And we we actually open it to the whole community. So it was a pretty cool community moment. You know, 70,000 of our users enrolled in the study, they contribute their data. That data actually helped us learn, you know, during COVID um, and create, you know, an algorithm um, that can prevent, hopefully, other people from spreading it around if they are sick. Um, we've had users reach out to us. I know one user I just happen to know, you know, his dad is immune compromised and he was planning to go see him during the holidays last year. And then all of a sudden, you know, his readiness score changed. He didn't feel symptoms, but it said his temperature was up a degree. He decided to go get tested and turned out he was positive. And, you know, luckily, you know, prevented spreading that around to his parents. But, you know, he went and saw them on New Year's a couple of weeks later. And so you know, I, I think um, just hearing stuff like has has really been pretty cool. So I think we just, you know, we invest in our product and our research. We think there's really two problems with wearable industry. It's, is this device accurate? And then what do I do with this data? And, you know, we're, we're going to solve both those things. And I think, you know, doubling down on accuracy, especially with something new like illness and how much that mattered during the pandemic was just the right thing to do as a company. Totally. Was that always, you think, part of the vision to actually think about going into preventable health and to think about how owning an aura and really hit these metrics, think about what they all could mean, could actually be help prevent you from disease? Yeah, I definitely think so. I think this idea of having sort of preventative data sets, sort of that check engine light, I think it can be so valuable. You know, most people don't know they have sleep apnea. Most people actually don't realize when they're getting sick, you know, it's sort of hard to manifest it in your body a day or two before you're fully sick, but you're spreading it around. Um, you know, I think the idea of sort of, I think about this like cars, you know, every car now it feels like has like backup camera or even something like, TPMS, tire pressure management system, right? Hey, my left tire is low. I should go take that in, get it fixed or pump more air in 
before I break down on the highway and can't drive my car. You know, these there's more sensors for our cars than our own bodies. And I think um, if you think about that and what that means, I think, you know, devices like Aura and others and, you know, other sets of data, eventually you can start to spot these things. Oh, no, that looks like your left tire is up. You know, maybe that is in the future. That looks like your blood pressure is getting up, right? Um, or, you know, hey, it looks like you may be developing apnea. Hey, it looks like actually some really fun ones too. You may be pregnant um, and you can see some of that data before you can on a urine test, it looks like with the Aura ring, which is really cool. I think there are some really exciting use cases on how this data can really be used in a preventative way for consumers and, and frankly, understand their bodies and their health more and take it into their own hands. No, totally, totally. I mean, I know this is probably a very large and ambitious question, but how are you thinking about Aura, how it plays into like the future of healthcare too? Are we going to maybe see in the next like, yeah, I know this is like, that's super, super large and ambitious. How are you thinking about Aura playing into the future of healthcare? Like, are we going to eventually see, you know, doctors being able to have access to your data to actually maybe understand how you're actually living through your lives so they can help get you the right treatment if you, if, if you do need treatment, if that makes sense? I think it's the future. You know, if you walk in, most people walk into a doctor's office every year at best, once a year, probably even less than that. It's almost like once every year and a half on average in the US. What does your doctor ask? How's your activity? Are you stressed at work? What's your sleep like? How's your diet? Right? Everyone's like, eh, you know, eh. but I think the future is like, hey, you're going to know. The consumers are going to know this. They're going to know how to take health into their own hands. Something's off my data. I need to go get this checked. Now, that's going to take time, right? Doctors today, it's not their fault, even doctors at the University of Michigan, um, Go Blue, aren't being taught today in classrooms how to interpret wearable data. It's not part of the curriculum. And why this technology is new. So I think the steps to do that are, first, you need to validate it. And that's why we focus so much, actually, on independent academic partner validation. We actually just have a, a sleep staging paper published today in Sensors, a medical journal online. And I don't know when this podcast will go out, but it actually shows our sleep staging now is better than any other wearable out there, period. You know, we published our heart rate variability compared to an EKG is 99 and 98% correlated. You know, we've worked with academic institutions to show that, hey, we can see you're potentially getting sick before you feel symptoms. So I think validating that data is the first thing. Then I think it's how do you educate? Okay, what does that mean for the doctor? How should they interpret it? How do you make these tools easy? Doctors don't have time to go through all your data and look at every single day over the last two years. They got 10 to 15 minutes with you. How can you make those insights easily and readily available to a doctor after validating that? Um, and then frankly, I think more and more of the future, we're already seeing it, is consumers just wanna take, they don't wanna wait to go to the doctor. They want to take health into their own hand. They're willing to spend on supplements. They're willing to spend more on healthier food. They're willing to spend more on gym memberships or tonals or Pelotons at home, right? They're willing to even start doing blood tests at home, saliva tests at home, whatever it is, so they can learn more about their health. So I think ultimately it comes down to education. The more and more you can educate people what this data may mean, and you have to be transparent on what it can also not mean or where it may be off, they're going to trust you more. They're going to start using this more and that'll spread throughout the system. Eventually, does this data live in an EMR or EHR and who has access to it? I have no idea. Complicated questions, but I think giving it to the consumer first, letting them understand it, empowering them to make the best decisions. And if you keep validating, show that it's valid and it can be helpful. And again, point out the limitations. I think it's just going to spread to consumers and the healthcare ecosystem. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? Often, I think the two are intertwined. I really like Daniel Quinn and Ishmael. Um, probably not a very 
common book that's talked about. It's pretty cool. It talks about environmental change and sort of sustainability, but it was, you know, this was, uh, I forget when it was published 20 years ago or something like that. It sort of talks about at a broader concept and societal level, like, and it's about actually a gorilla who can talk. It's it's pretty fascinating. Um, <laughs> but uh, just like this, this idea of sort of like, you know, teach someone how to fish, right? And they're going to be able to feed themselves versus just giving them a fish, um, you know, sort of creates reliability and dependencies um, that they don't want and you don't want. Um, so I think that that's been a pretty cool book, both personally and professionally. I would say that's like the one that's probably inspired me, you know, the most on both on on both on both fronts. Um, outside of that, I do like Buffett. You know, I think there's something into a lot of the folksy stuff. So the Buffett shareholder letter is probably more professionally. Like things like Peter Drucker, what gets measured gets mastered. You know, I think um, generally right versus specifically wrong. That's actually, you know, Keynes. I do like some of the economic, economics and, and business books as well from, I guess, the professional standpoint. No, love it. Love it. I don't think we've had anyone mention Daniel Quinn and Ishmael. So really excited to add that to the book list. And that sounds really fascinating too. I'll, I'll definitely add that to my book list. My last question to you is what's the best piece of advice that you've received? I would say the best piece of advice I, I received is from one of my college professors who really you know pushed me more away from sort of engineering and into business. He was a former engineer, teaches entrepreneurship in Michigan. And he, he used to tell me, he's like, look, the amount of hours you're going to have to learn something is limited in your lifetime right? Like you can only read so many books. You can only, you know, learn a subject so much, but the collective knowledge of others in your network is infinite or can be infinite, you know, learn, learning through others. So I think that, you know, really sort of always taught me how to like, Hey, I don't know how to do something. That's fine. Go ask someone, right? They've probably been through their subject matter expert, learn from them. Podcast, awesome for that. Books, great for that. Talking to people, perhaps even better for that. Um, and so I think all those mediums really, really help. I would say where I think some the other advice that I get that's really helpful, frankly, is like be confident. After you do all that homework and you learn, like ultimately you have to make a decision, you have to make a choice, and don't be afraid. I can tell you when we did that study at UCSF, it was scary. Sales were down right end of February, early March, right? Like we made the biggest investment to get a study off the ground. We donated two thousand rings. We had a donor who donated another to get on the frontline healthcare workers. That was scary when your revenue and cash is like down, right? Like you're like, oh my god, can we survive? We're about to make the biggest financial investment we've made, but you know we did that luckily and got the study going. And whatever the you know couple hundred thousand dollars that we put into it, or forget what it was, ended up being dwarfed by the grants that they got over the next three months. You know, to that researcher, ended up getting over five million dollars of grant work, six million, I think, all in. You know, really propel that study, get blood tests, saliva tests going, and everything. So I think um, you know that was a scary choice last year to make, but to me, it just felt like ultimately the right one to do. And you know, ultimately, I think it's like taking that knowledge, making the best decision, trusting your gut would be sort of the best advice I'd give people today. And then you learn from it. You know, you try something, it doesn't work. It's not a failure. It's actually just a way of learning. And so you actually want to learn as fast as possible, right? You want to, you know, take as many shots as possible and learn from them and figure out which ones do work. I love all those pieces of advice. So that's great. Be confident. Don't be afraid. Trust in your gut. Collective knowledge, um, as well as the kind of like collaboration is a good thing. And so, yeah, I love that. Harpreet, thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Likewise, Mike, thanks for having me. Thanks for putting all the knowledge you do out there. I think it's so helpful for everyone when they're interested in health, interested in consumer behavior and businesses and startups. Thanks. Thanks a ton. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Harpreet. I would recommend following him on Twitter, but he hasn't posted anything since 2012. 
I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. 